Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson from the Moth, and I'll be your host this time. At the Moth, people of all kinds bring their stories to stages around the country and tell them in front of a live audience. This hour, we have three stories, all of them about relationships and their attendant difficulties and delights. We'll hear about a family so large they could be a softball team, a radio host running as a guide for the visually impaired, and this first story, which asks... Can true love survive in the absence of modern plumbing? We first met Jessica Lee Williamson at one of our story slams in Los Angeles, where we partner with radio station KCRW. She's told dozens of five-minute stories, but eventually worked with the moth to develop this longer story for our main stage series. Here's Jessica Lee Williamson, live in New York. I grew up in a really small town. It's one of those places where people are born and then never leave. And in a way, it felt like some of those people just took what was handed to them in life and never thought to ask for anything more, unless you were the type of person who enjoyed daily trips to Walmart or putting on camouflage and shooting animals in the head, then There really wasn't anything to do there. All I ever wanted to do was leave. I wanted to be around people who were creating things and create things myself, which didn't happen right away for me. I spent a big part of my 20s hungover and wandering. I dropped out of college and waitressed in a bunch of different towns. I always talked about being a writer, but never actually wrote anything. Once I started to write a screenplay, but halfway through the first paragraph, I realized that the Bachelor season finale was getting ready to start. (laughs) So I told myself the story was best left to marinate in my brain. Then one summer, I met Patrick when we were both working as seasonal employees in Yellowstone National Park. On our first date, he took me hiking up a mountainside. He was wearing hiking boots and carrying a set of binoculars. I was wearing flip-flops and a miniskirt and was carrying a pack of camel lights. (laughs) Even with all of our differences, there were so many reasons why I fell in love with that guy. He was smart and funny and the kind of person who always rose to the occasion of life. Unlike me, he did the things he said he was going to do. And that was very intimidating because I was constantly thinking, if I stay with him, I'm actually going to have to do something too. (laughs) But it was also very inspiring because I desperately wanted to be that person. And so when the summer ended, I made my way to Los Angeles and started taking the first steps towards doing it. Patrick and I maintained our relationship with long distance phone calls and the occasional weekend visit. He ended up in Flagstaff, Arizona. I was still living in Los Angeles and there was just this underlying feeling that the distance was starting to pull us apart. That's when he called me and asked me if I would move to Arizona to be with him. I think it's important to mention that when he called me, I knew he was living in a tent (laughs) on a campground called Fort Tuthill. It was in a wooded area right between a racetrack and the county fairgrounds. And 
It was nice in the way that it had a water spigot and a porta potty nearby. <laughs> he had a lot of facial hair, and he was usually dirty because he worked as a tree cutter for the Forest Service. Sometimes people would mistake him for a homeless person, and they'd slip him a dollar when passing him on the street. We always got a real kick out of that. I guess it never occurred to us that, technically speaking, he was a homeless person. <laughs> Obvious things aside, there were so many other reasons for me not to move out there. I was living in a city that I loved. I was taking classes, and I had a job that I liked. And all of those things were a really big deal for me because things hadn't always been that way. But I moved there anyway because I loved him and I felt like he made me a better person. And I had this fear that if I didn't go, I would lose both of those things. So the only thing I asked him for in return was that he find us a real place to live. When I got there, we drove to that place. Patrick had been working a lot, so he hadn't actually seen it. He just went into the rental office and signed the lease, which at the time I thought was exciting because we would get to experience our new home together. <laughs> Little did I know, it was in a trailer park 10 miles out of town. Our trailer was all the way at the back of the park, and it was rustic in the way that the unpaved roads leading up to it were roamed by unleashed pit bulls and toddlers alike. <laughs> I stayed optimistic. I ignored the rusty appliances piled up in the front yard, and I pretended not to notice the giant hole in the middle of our kitchen floor. It was the beginning of the school year in a small college town, and most of the rentals were gone, so I decided I would be gracious about it, and I moved into Patrick's tent instead. I bought a coffee table to make it more homey, <laughs> and there really is this romantic feeling about going back to simple times, but that fades after about three days of having to fetch and boil water just to wash your face. I tried to be a good sport about it, but Patrick was gone all the time for work, and when he was there, I started to notice that he was only happy if his friends were there too. They'd sit around the campfire talking about chainsaws and the scientific names of trees while I cried and checked myself for ticks in the tent. <laughs> and I was hoping that maybe things would get better once I found a job, but it's really hard to convince someone to hire you after you've told them you live at Fort Tudhill, so I ended up taking the only job I could find, waitressing at a truck stop diner. On my first day there, I asked my coworker Gail where we kept the napkins. She said she had no brains left because they all got fucked out the night before and that I would have to find the napkins on my own. <laughs> I finally did find an apartment right around the same time the park service was forcing us to leave Fort Tudhill for the winter months. And there was this part of me that really believed that that apartment would be the thing to make things go back to the way they were when we first met. But Patrick was still gone all the time for work and spending his free time out at bars with his friends. I think Patrick was angry with me for not making the best out of a situation and for depending on him to make me happy. I was angry with him for ignoring my misery after I had given up so much to be there. Not that we actually ever said that. We would say I love you out loud, 
the I resent you part was just implied. <laughs> I ended up spending most of my time at work with Gail. We would trade stories about fights with our boyfriends and show each other the flowers or the text messages they would send us in lieu of an apology. Gail had kids and a boyfriend who had just finished serving time for selling crystal meth. She had legal troubles too. There were days where I would go into work and I would have to work two sections because Gail had been arrested for a DUI or for violating a restraining order. And while I was thankful for the friendship, it made my situation even more depressing because I was back in this place where I hated my job and I wasn't being creative and my friendship with Gail was constantly forcing me to look at a life that had always been one of my biggest fears. One night, Gail asked me to join her for drinks. She said we should dress nice. I wore a kitten heels and a line skirt. She wore red lipstick and a Looney Tunes sweatshirt. <laughs> we picked out some songs on the jukebox and played darts. And at some point, she asked me what I did before I moved to Flagstaff. And I told her that I lived in Los Angeles and I took writing classes and that I worked as a production assistant on music videos. And she just gave me this long, strange look and said, what the hell are you doing here? And that question really stuck with me because I didn't have a good answer for it. And I had worked so hard not to be the girl serving waffles at a truck stop and not to be the girl all dressed up at a bar called Porky's talking about all the things she could be doing on a Saturday night. It took this woman who couldn't leave because of her kids and because of her probation officer <laughs> to remind me that I could. So I broke up with Patrick. I took my coffee table and the little bit of dignity I still had and I went back to my life in LA about a year later, Patrick was out visiting Los Angeles and I met him for lunch. And I don't think he would like it if I told a room full of strangers that he cried a little while we were at El Pollo Loco. <laughs> so I'm just gonna say that Patrick was really, really sad while we were eating lunch at El Pollo Loco. <laughs> and maybe that should have felt good in a selfish kind of way. But I realized that when we were in Flagstaff, we never stopped loving each other. We were just at this point in our lives where we loved different things. And even though Patrick was the person who inspired me to give myself a better life, I should never have given up so much without asking for enough in return. So I asked him if he could be there for me on an emotional level when I needed him to be, and also if we could live in a place where we both had the opportunity to do the things that we loved. And he said yes. A year ago, we got married out in the mountains, but in a place with shelter and modern-day plumbing. The last two parts of that equation were my idea. And you guys, there were a lot of very uncomfortable speeches about tents at our wedding. But I was okay with it, because I don't think our lives would have turned out the way they did if I hadn't gone to Flagstaff or if I had stayed there. Thank you.
That was Jessica Lee Williamson. She and Patrick have settled in Los Angeles, where she's a writer and artist, and Patrick, after shaving, is an environmental lawyer who hikes, fly fishes, and surfs on the weekends. Jessica reports that their apartment is way nicer than that tent. To see photos of the Camp Tudhill campsite and the happy couple, visit themoth.org. When we come back, a story about love at first sight and a whole lot of children. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. This next story is from Horace H.B. Sanders. He told it live at a moth show at the Warren Miller Auditorium in Big Sky, Montana. The evening was called Stories of Coming Home. Here's Horace live at the moth. So I'm five minutes late for my own divorce. I'm rushing from the parking structure to the courthouse. And all I keep hearing in my head is, I know you're going to be late, Horace. I know you're going to be late. You're always late. That's my wife. I know you're going to be late. And I'm like, ooh, I'm not going to be late. But unfortunately, I don't have any time travel capabilities. So I rush through security. I get on the elevator. I go past four other floors. I get to mine. I jump off. And no one's there. I look to my left, there are a couple benches, three doors, no one. I look to my right, some more benches, three more doors, no one. See there, I'm worried about being late, she's not even here. Matter of fact, no one is here. There were tons of people in the lobby and people on the other floors, but I'm the first one here. I have time, I sit down, I adjust my tie, fix my shirt. Now I can go over in my head what I want to say to the judge, because it's only going to be me, my wife, and the judge. Neither of us have attorneys. And I don't want this divorce. This is her idea. Now, granted, I have given her a reason to want a divorce, but that's not the point. I mean, my parents have been married at this point for 36 years. They have a great marriage. I know a marriage can work. I mean, I'm going to tell the judge this. I'm going to tell him, hey, just give us some counseling. I love her. She loves me. We can work this out. So I've gone over this a few times in my head. And I'm noticing time is going by. Now, at this point, it's almost 30 minutes, and I'm getting bothered. Like, wait a minute. Did the court tell me to get here early so they could just wait all day? And finally, a door opens. I'm like, yeah, finally. And I see my wife walk through the door. Well, at least she was before she came through the door. Hey, what are you doing in there? Where are you coming from? It's over, Horace. What do you mean it's over? Look at you. I knew you wouldn't be here. Look at you. You didn't even make it to our divorce. What do you mean divorce? What do you mean it's over? It's over. I'm like, no, it can't be over. I've been sitting out here for 20 minutes. And my wife is so smart. I mean, I'm smart too. But she has an uncanny knack of asking me questions that I somehow forgot to ask myself. (laughs) So you've been out here for 20 minutes? Why didn't you come inside? Yeah, why didn't I come inside? (laughs) I don't have a good answer. I was just, uh, it's over. She hands me the papers. And that's when it hits me. I just lost my wife. I mean, I just lost my wife. My marriage is over. And I literally sat there and did nothing. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you because people get married and divorced every day. Sometimes they even do it in the same day. (laughs) But for you to understand the magnitude of this divorce, you got to understand my wife and me. I mean, I still remember the exact second when I first met her. I'm a comedian. I got booked as a new comic at this brand new comedy club. At the same time, my wife had just gotten hired. She wasn't my wife at the time. As the new bartender. Now, I had just gotten out of a bad relationship two years ago. And my friends told me, man, you got to see this new bartender at the comedy club. I'm like, look, later for that. 
I'm trying to focus on my career, focus on my two daughters, Kamei, who's seven, Kamaria, who's three, and focus on my relationship with God. That's enough. Plus, I don't even drink, never have. What would I look like being with a bartender? Oh. So I come in the club, I walk down the hallway, I bend that corner around the left, and I see LaFawn behind the bar. She is amazing. So I'm walking towards her, I'm like, come on, think of something to say. You're a comedian, think of something funny. Make her laugh, they like that. <laughs> so I walk up, I'm like, excuse me, could I get a Coke on the rocks? She laughs. I'm like, yeah, I got her. And she is amazing. I mean, she has this beautiful long hair. She has these black stirrup pants on with these black boots that are seamless. You can't tell where the boots end and the pants begin. She's like some cute little superhero. So I'm talking to her, and it's my turn to get on stage. But I'm about to go up there and really kill it now. And not because I need to get paid or not because I want to be funny. It's because I got to impress this new girl I just met. So I'm up there, and I think the best thing to do is talk about her. I was like, yeah, I asked the bartender for something to drink. She gave me this little bitty cup. I said, I wanted Coke, not NyQuil. Oh, the crowd is loving it. And I look over and see her laughing, too. I'm like, yeah, reeling her in. <laughs> All I'm thinking at this point is when I get off stage, this can't be the end of this night. I got to talk to her after this. So I get to the bar, and I see her going to peer through the curtains. I'm like, what's wrong? Is there a problem? She's like, my ride is not here. It's supposed to be here. Here's my opportunity. Hey, you need a ride. I'll be glad to take you home. What I didn't realize until later was that she called her ride when I was on stage and said, hey, girl, I'm good. I don't need a ride tonight. <laughs> See, I told you she was smart. So we get in the car. We're riding home. She tells me that she has a daughter, Noelle, who's almost two. I'm like, I got two girls, Kamea and Kamaria. Look at that. We got a whole full back seat already. <laughs> now it's time to talk about the most important things. Hey, what's your favorite movie? She's like, you know what movie I love, I saw, I love it, I can't stop quoting it? I'm like, what? Austin Powers 2, the spy who shagged me. I'm like, what? That's my favorite movie too? This has to be God, he put us together. Matter of fact, we're talking about it so much, we're like, we gotta see it. But it's not at the movie theaters now. So I'm like, hey, let's go rent it, let's go to Blockbuster. So we stopped by her sister's first to pick up a VCR. That's how long ago this was. I mean, Blockbuster is still open. <laughs> so we go in there. I don't have a membership, but I do happen to have all the money from my last three work weeks on the road working. So I discreetly, but nonchalantly, pull out this big knot of money. Uh, yeah, how much is it to pay for that movie? She's like, ooh, he's a baller. <laughs> so I buy the movie. We go back to her house. We watch the movie. It's watching us. We start kissing like we're in high school. Man, it's amazing. We spend the night together, and that morning I leave. It's like, she'll never be out of my life. From that day forward, we've been in each other's lives. Now, fast forward a couple years of dating, I ask her to marry me. We're so excited, we're planning for a December wedding. But we get kind of anxious. Neither one of us wants to wait. So we go to a justice of the peace down in Ohio, get married by a judge on the courthouse steps. So now we're married. But now, instead of a December wedding, we're planning a December birth, our first child together. Another girl, Trinity. She's born on Christmas, which is my birthday. Come on, how cool is this? <laughs> so the next year, I have the biggest opportunity in my career. I'm on television. I'm traveling. Things are going better. And within a year, we have another daughter, Micah, five girls. And my wife is an amazing mother. You know what? My dad actually says that my wife is the best mother in the world. Now, I don't know how he says this when my mom is sitting right next to him. <laughs> But I get his point. She is truly amazing. She makes all of their birthdays a unique event. Other people even try and hire her to plan their kids' birthdays. Then a year later, we have another baby, Halen. Now we got six girls. We need two back seats now. We're going along. We're being good parents, but we're not sharing like we used to. I'm spending more time on my career. That's where I'm successful. She's spending more time on the kids. That's where she's successful. But now we're not quoting movie lines to each other. Now we're starting to quote arguments and things we said wrong to each other. Then we have our first son who comes prematurely, Xavier. He's only two pounds. This is a real traumatic time for us, a lot to go through. And somehow it doesn't push us closer. It pushes us further apart. But not so far, because a year later we have another child, <laughs> Isaiah. 
And he's born on Xavier's birthday. Another cool thing. But this coolness is not enough to keep us together. So we end up back where this story started, at the divorce. Now, I'm going to be a good dad. I am. She's a good mom. So we're going to be in each other's lives. I'm not going to go too far. Matter of fact, even though we're divorced, we end up having another child a couple years later. <laughs> Little Ashton. <laughs> so now I'm dating other people. She's starting to date. But I'm still missing my wife. And I tell her even, you know what? We're going to end up back together. And she likes to say, no, Horace, I'm going to marry somebody new. So then one day, it's the day before Mother's Day. And I said, you know what? I know you plan on going to watch that big boxing fight tonight because we both are big boxing fans. I was like, instead of that, why don't you come hang with me? Let's hang together. She's like, no, I got plans. I'm like, come on, let's hang together and talk. She's adamant she's not coming. So she goes on her merry way. Now, I could have went out to watch the fight myself. Could have hung out with my boys. I went and found a girl to hang with. But I decided to go back to her house. I went up to her room and had a talk with the Lord. I prayed, pulled out my Bible. I was honest with myself, which I wasn't always doing. Because I always knew there was something more in me, but I didn't know what I was waiting on. I think I was waiting on that moment. I told God what I was willing to do and what I wasn't willing to do. I asked him for what I really wanted. and said, God, if it's supposed to be that, then let it happen. She came home that morning. Now, I know fights don't last all night. So I know she just wasn't at a fight party. But that wasn't the most important thing. I sat her down and said, look, we can fix this. We can fix our relationship and be together and have an amazing life. And you need to tell me and be committed. And if you can't do that, then I need to leave. And not just this house, I'm leaving the state. I'm moving. I'm going to pursue my career. I'll take care of the kids. But there's no way I can stay here in this city and watch you be with someone else when I know you're the woman I love. You know what she said? She believed me. She said, Horace, you've said something like that before, but I really believe you now. And I think it's because I believed myself. We were in love on Mother's Day. About two weeks later, I asked her to marry me again. She said yes. Now, this is how I really knew things were going well. One morning, she was taking the kids to school, and when she went out the back door, the door almost fell off the hinges. Now, normally, this would have been an occurrence where she hollered at me, Horace, you need to fix this door. What's wrong with it? But instead, she said, hey, baby, be careful coming out the door because it's off the hinges. And normally, I might have still been sleeping because I'm like, I pick the kids up in the afternoon. You take them in the morning. But I was up and dressed. Now, before she could get our kids to school and come back with her morning coffee, I had been to Home Depot. I got wood, nails, screws, hammers, saws. When she came in the house, I was putting on a new door. She gently stepped past me. Excuse me. I saw her going to the dining room and get on her phone. She's like, girl, you ain't going to believe this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Remember I told you the door was broke? He is building me a new door. Not just the door, the frame and everything. Girl, he got a handsaw. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got her again. So we did more that summer than we did in the last five years. We traveled everywhere. I worked with her at her job. She created her own face painting company. I'm a comedian. I'm painting faces, but I'm in love. She's coming to my shows with me. It's amazing. We decided to plan this wedding in November, but again, we can't wait. So she's like, hey, I know, let's do 9, 10, 11. I like the date, but all the venues are booked up. She's like, man. So jokingly, I tell her in front of my brothers and sisters, hey, why don't you go all the way, 9, 10, 11, 12? She's smart. She's like, yeah, that'll work. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, because the venues are available on 9, 9, 11. So she gets a beautiful place. We rent it. We decide to have our reception first. So from 8 o'clock, to 11.59, we have a great reception. And then at the stroke of midnight, our pastor marries us on 9, 10, 11, 12. It was amazing. And I remember the week before the wedding, she came to me real quietly and said, baby, I got to ask you something. I know you love me. And you know we got nine children. <laughs> How much of this getting back together is about us? And how much is about the kids? I said, look, forget them kids. <laughs> because if we do this right, one day they're going to grow up 
they're going to find spouses of their own and get married and start their own families. And it'll still be you and I. This is about you and me. And I think to something my dad likes to say. Him and my mom have been married for 50 years. He always told me, Horace, me and your mom are related to you, but we're not related to each other. The only thing that keeps us together is that we choose to love one another. And the Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I found my wife. Now I lost her, but I found her again. And I'll never lose her again. That was Horace H.B. Sanders. Horace is a comedian born and raised in Detroit. We first found him at a Moth Story Slam, where we partner with public radio station WDET. While working on his story with me, Horace kept the content a secret from his wife and kids. Sometimes when we talked, he'd be hiding out in his car. We caught up with his wife, LaFawn, right after she heard it for the first time and asked what she thought. It was very moving. It was very true, so a little embarrassed, and I'm still in shock, I think. I definitely think there are dozens of stories inside that story. Obviously, the dramatic side of it that people love to hear, the dirt, the drama, like what led to the divorce, and all of that is is always entertaining for some people, but it's also helpful in a way because to be transparent is really important for other people to connect with you. And, you know, we have a, a real story of um, a forgiveness and reconnection and, you know, just being able to rebuild after very bad times. I just wanted to share my heart about it. I wanted it to be funny and fun and enjoyable, um, but it just, she means the world to me. To see a picture of Horace, LaFawn, and all the kids at the 9, 10, 11, 12 wedding, visit themoth.org, where you can find all the stories you're hearing in this hour and also find out more about our storytellers. When we return, public radio host Peter Sagal tells us about running a marathon as a guide for a visually impaired man. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson from The Moth. Our final story is from what might be a familiar voice to many of you in Radio Land. Peter Sagal is the host of NPR's quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but he's also a runner with 12 marathons under his belt. We invited him to New York City to tell a story at the beautiful Cooper Union, where Abraham Lincoln once spoke. Hi. Uh, so I turned 40 some years ago. <laughs> and I said to myself, oh my God, I'm turning 40. I'm going to die. And then I said to myself, wait a minute, if I run a marathon, I won't die. You may laugh but it's worked so far. (laughs) And a few years ago, I decided to put a lot of effort and time and energy and training and discipline into running a marathon particularly quickly and setting what's called a PR, and I did it. I was very proud. At the end of the year, in fact, uh, my family, my wife and my three daughters, we always have a tradition on New Year's. We have dinner wherever we are, and we say what we're most proud of, and I said, I am most proud of, of that effort, of putting all that time and effort in and really doing well and running that marathon really quickly. And my wife said, why would you ever be proud of that? (laughs) And I said to myself, 
this marriage is over. <laughs> and so it was uh, a cold night in January, and uh, I sat with my wife on the porch of our house where we had lived with our kids for a long time, and I said, look, look, and we went over the troubles that we've been having for a long time and the conflicts and the effects in the children, and I said, look, there's no reason why we can't have an amicable divorce, and there's no reason why we can't continue to co-parent our children as friends, as partners in that. It turns out I am a really bad counter of reasons. <laughs> there were a lot of reasons, it turned out. And within a couple of months, I was pretty much an exile in my own home, living up in the attic, sneaking out in the morning, not letting anyone see me, taking my meals alone. In honor of Mr. Lincoln, who spoke here, let me say something else about a house divided. It sucks to live in one. <laughs> now, around this time, my various friends, knowing what I was going through, started telling me about a famous quote from Winston Churchill. Perhaps you've heard it. The quote is, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> In fact, somebody gave me a little refrigerator magnet with just that saying on it. If you're going through hell, keep going. So I went. I left. I kept leaving. I didn't have any place else to live, but I kept accepting invitations. I get a lot of invitations. I had normally refused them. No, I have to be with my family. Now my family didn't want me around. So I said yes, and I hosted dinners, and I went out to this, and I accepted that invitation. And I accepted one invitation in particular, which was from an organization called Team with a Vision, up in Boston, and the invitation was to come and run the Boston Marathon as a guide for a blind runner. Now this came at a particularly good time, not only for the reasons I've already told you about, but because after running that really fast, difficult marathon, I had actually lost motivation to run much more. I mean, running is something you do for yourself. Oh, it's so good you're doing it for yourself, people say. Oh, this is, it's so good you're, you're in such good shape. This is so good for you. Yeah, it's good for you. And really, that's about it, right? It's kind of solipsistic. I mean, I have run thousands of miles, and yet I am still right here. <laughs> so I was excited to try to run a few miles, 26 in fact, for somebody else. And I also have to tell you that one of the difficult things about my situation was that I was cut off from my children. I couldn't take care of them, which was frustrating and sad, and here was somebody else to take care of. In fact, the person's name was William Greer. He is from Austin, Texas. Now, William is in his 40s, like me. He started running uh, more or less as a midlife crisis, like me, except he had a problem, which is that when he was about 17 years old, he was hit by a car, smashed open the back of his head, which pretty much scrambled his vision center. He is legally blind. His eyes work fine. His brain does not. So he has a lot of difficulty figuring out what he is seeing. He had run marathons before by himself. He managed to make do by following the crowd and figuring out what the shapes were. But for Boston, the Boston Marathon, the most famous, the oldest, the most prestigious marathon in America, the one all amateur runners dream of going to and doing well at, he wanted help. He wanted a guide. He wanted me. So. On the third Monday in April, Patriot's Day, I found myself in downtown Boston meeting William Greer, and we were riding out to the Boston Marathon start. I should say something about that. Most marathons, um, you know, you start someplace, say downtown Chicago for the Chicago Marathon, you run around, you come back to where you started. Awesome. Boston is point to point. You start where you finish, downtown Boston, and they put you in a car or a bus or whatever, and they drive you all the way out to the start, which is weird, because you're driving out, it's 26 miles. And about halfway through that, you look around and go, wait a minute, they expect me to run back? <laughs> so William and I talked, and what he told me was is that he needed some assurance. He wanted me to run to his left and right in front of him, a little bit right there where my hand is, so that he could see me with his best peripheral vision, and he wanted me to help him overcome obstacles as we went. If there were any turns in the course, he was worried about missing the turn and shooting off into nowhere. He was really worried about flaws in the pavement. He had had a bad fall at a prior marathon. Imagine what that's like not to be able to see something. All of a sudden, you're on the ground in pain. He didn't want that to happen. So my job was to warn him of turns and warn him of flaws in the pavement. I should say, by the way, 
The Boston Marathon has two turns in the whole distance, and they're there at the very end, and it's the Boston Marathon. They take care of the pavement, okay? So there really wasn't going to be much to do. Nonetheless, there we were, my standing with him, eager, excited to help him do this difficult thing that he had dreamed of doing for a long time. We started out the Boston Marathon in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. Beautiful morning, perfect for a marathon, about 45, 50 degrees, little cloud cover, it was awesome. The Boston Marathon starts out easy, it's why it's so difficult. You start out, it's sloping downhill, there are trees, there are drunk people in bars already waving to you, it's great. And you think, Wow, everybody talked about this as if it was really hard. But wow, it's really simple. I'm going to do great. It's a lot like marriage. <laughs> so we're running along and we're talking, you know, there's not much else to do, being there a lack of um, turns or flaws in the pavement. And we're talking with stuff about stuff and learning about each other. He's a great guy. He's been through a lot. He triumphed over an, uh, over an injury that was supposed to cripple him. He's fine. He's got a great wife named Ellen. He's accomplished a lot in his life. He's happy. He's stable. He's ready to go. We're having a fine time. At the halfway point, we get to the great Wellesley Scream Tunnel. This is one of the great things about the Boston Marathon. 13-mile point comes right at the campus of Wellesley, right? And all the students at Wellesley, although it seems that way, pack the sides of the course. And they scream so loudly, you can hear them a mile away. And they're all holding signs. The signs say, kiss me. Kiss me, I'm Jewish. Kiss me, I'm Asian. Kiss me, I'm an English major. Kiss me, I really want you to kiss me. I don't know why they do this. Presumably, it's a contest of some kind. I don't care. I thought we had it made. We had the heroic blind runner and the noble guy helping him. We were going to make out like bandits. <laughs> but we get up there, and what does William do? He slips ahead of me. He starts high-fiving the girls, disappointing them and me. I'm like, William, what are you doing? He's like, I promised Ellen I would never kiss anyone else. <laughs> so now we're in the second half of the Boston Marathon, miles 14, 15, 16. He starts to have trouble. Marathons are difficult. Marathons are hard. You never know what's going to happen in the day, no matter how hard you train. 26 miles is a long way to run. He starts having stomach cramps. My first useful thing was finding him a porta potty He starts having leg cramps. He has to stop and stretch them out. He is falling apart. It happens to a lot of us. It happened to me the first time. We ran, I ran Boston. There are f four famous hills in the Boston Marathon known as the Newton Hills. And it's not so much that they're steep, they're not. The most famous of them, Heartbreak Hill, you wouldn't even notice if you were, say, driving up it while having an intense conversation. But when you run them, and you run them starting at mile 20 of a marathon, you know they're there. So the first hill, he charged up. He did great. I was like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to make it to the end. The second hill hurt him. He had to stop and walk. The third hill as well, and the fourth hill, Heartbreak Hill, we ended up walking up it. Now again, this happens to everybody. This happens to me. But I should say, it wasn't happening today. Again, I don't know what it was exactly. I had worried that I wouldn't be ready for this marathon. I hadn't been training. I hadn't been in the mood. But for some reason, Getting out of my own head and my own self and my own race allowed me to also get out of my own pain and discomfort. I was all there about William, helping him. I didn't have time to be uncomfortable or to feel tired. I was focused on him and what he could do and what he might not be able to do. So we were struggling through the last few miles of the race, walking and starting and stopping. And I was doing what I could to motivate him. And, and I said this to him. I said, look, I said, William, it's your race, it's your day, but you got to run the last mile of the Boston Marathon. The last mile of the Boston Marathon, very famous, very impressive. You take a right onto Hereford, the first of those two turns I mentioned. You take a quick left onto Boylston, and all of a sudden, you're in this canyon of noise, these tall buildings which are rare in Boston, and there you are in the middle of them, and there are people packed eight deep on the sides, and they're all cheering your name, and a quarter mile ahead of you, you can see the finish line. It is awesome. It is your own Olympics. You can't be walking, right? You gotta run it. And he said, I'll do my best. And we got through mile 23 and 24 and mile 25. And he said to me, where is that right turn? I said, William, it's about 100 yards ahead. Can you see it? He said, no, I can't. When I get there, though, I think I'm gonna have to walk. And I said, fine, man, it's okay, it's your race. And we got to that turn. He's on my right, I'm a little bit ahead of him. And he made the turn, and not only did he not stop, he sped up. 
which took me by surprise. And I was behind him as he was running right toward the only pothole in the entire course, <laughs> marked by a big orange cone, which would be awesome if you're not blind. So I'm like, ah, I didn't have time to say anything. I did not expect this. He was heading right for it. And before I could say anything or certainly reach him to stop him, he saw it and went around it. I was like, yes. And I followed him up that road and we took the left onto Boylston, which was just as I promised it would be. The crowds packed deep and people were cheering. And I said, William, can you see the finish line? And he said, I can see it. And I said, go, and he was running, and he was stronger than he had been for miles. And I was cheering on the crowd by waving my arms and saying, guys, guys, it's William, shout his name. And they were shouting, William, go, William, go. And we charged down that thing, that shoot, that finish, and we crossed the finish line, and he kept running. I said, William, you can stop. And he said, I can, and he collapsed with that adrenaline crash you get after achieving something impossible. And I tell you now, I have never been as proud of anybody as I was of that man at that moment. He had done something so heroic and so difficult because he wanted to do it. And I hugged him and he was in no mood to celebrate because he was totally destroyed by this effort. <laughs> Medical personnel came up, right? They were like, are you okay? I'm fine. And I was like, come on, man, let's get your medal, let's get your Gatorade. He's like, I just want to see my wife, Ellen. And I'm like, great. And then, boom! Loudest noise I've ever heard. We turned around, we were about 100 yards beyond the finish line, and a huge plume of white smoke was rising into the air. And I've run 10, 11 marathons, I never heard anything like that. And about 10 seconds later, another, boom! And I was like, well, I would like to go find out what that is. But here's William. He's in pain. He wants to see his wife. My job is to help him find his wife. So we walked down the chute, and I got him his Gatorade, and I got him his medal. And I got him back to Ellen, who was pretty worried by that point. There were a lot of ambulances and sirens by that time, so we knew something very bad had happened. But it wasn't until that night I was at the airport trying to get out of Boston and I finally sat down in front of my computer and I started calling up all the videos of the bombing and I saw what had happened. I saw the blood and I saw the injuries and I saw the horror. And I also saw the clock. The bombs went off when the race clock was at 4.09. William and I crossed the line at 4.05, four and a half minutes. He ran that last mile, and he didn't want to, but he did it. And I don't know what might have happened if he had given in to his body and his better instinct and walked that last mile. I don't know where we would have been. Maybe we would have been walking up Far away from the bombs, maybe we would have crossed the line, maybe not. I thought about it a lot. I don't know what to think. Except this, William Greer of Austin, Texas, blind runner, was going through hell, and he kept going. Thanks. That was Peter Sagal. He's the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, as well as an author and playwright. To see a picture of Peter running with William at the Boston Marathon that year, visit themoth.org. Peter returned as a guide runner to the 2014 Boston Marathon, where he works with an organization called Team with a Vision. Do you have a story you think we need to hear? Go to the Moth website, click on Tell a Story, and it'll take you on a step-by-step how-to. Record it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH, 877-799-6684. The best pitches are developed for Moth shows all around the country. 
Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for the Moth Radio Hour. Your host this hour was Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show, along with Maggie Sino. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Whitney Jones. Moss Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Ozzy Kotani and Daniel Ho, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, and Felix LeBond. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.